we shot in Israel, we were doing a, a terrorist attack right across street from the mayor of Jerusalem's office. Welcome to this second edition of Midnight Video with your hosts, me, Jim Hall. And me, Phil Walsh. Tonight we goose step through the ghetto in our jack talking jack boots and do the funky Fuhrer with Lee Frost's unimaginable yet fully realised The Black Gestapo. Then we swap the urban jungle for the real deal as sweaty Roy Scheider takes on an explosive mission in William Friedkin's big budget remake of The Wages of Fear. Magical or misguided, it's Sorcerer. And finally, we snake out of the jungle and head for deepest, darkest Derbyshire as Ken Russell burrows into Bram Stoker's source novel in order to undress Amanda Donahoe. Hugh Grant gets an eyeful in the lair of the white worm. Okay, so welcome to uh, our second show. Thanks for sticking with us. Um, hopefully we'll be getting these out on a fairly regular basis. Phil, how's your week been? I know you've been a bit busy... Uh, getting some preparation done for some a rival podcast <laughs> oh no he's not they're not rivals no they're, we're all uh, brothers yeah we're comrades in arms brothers in amateur <laughs> <laughs> amateur record <laughs> uh yeah the, um movie matters podcast run by uh count fosco who i know from the mondo website and from twitter and whatnot he um he's asked me to join them and talk about the alien quadrilogy Quadrilogy, yeah, always a good. They, ma- they made that up, didn't they? I don't know what's wrong with quartet. <laughs> but yeah, so um, yeah, I'll be gibbering on about that tomorrow, hopefully. Even though I haven't been <laughs> rather ill prepared for it because my uh, son's been a bit poorly and playing up this week. So if I do sound a bit jaded throughout this <laughs> entire podcast, it's because of lack of sleep. You're not getting fed up of watching low budget trash already. Are you? No, definitely not. That's no. what keeps me awake with him as well. But you know, <laughs> keeps me going, should I say? Okay, then. and you've, you've managed to uh, rewatch the Alien trilogy or not? Sorry, quadrilogy. Uh, half of them. <laughs> One and a two. Yeah, I've got I've got through the first two. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be able to watch them all. T- the rest of them tonight in time for tomorrow, because it's Mother's Day tomorrow, of course. So I'll be out and about. Uh, it's not some reference to the Queen Alien. <laughs> no, uh, it could be. Hey. <laughs> oh, okay. Shall we press on? Let's get on with it. Okay then. You have got to get it together by yourselves, for yourselves. Martin Luther King had a dream, and it was blasted into eternity with him. I offer you reality! The Black Gestapo was released in 1975 and directed by Lee Frost. Uh, this Nazi exploitation grindhouse film deals with the inner city people's army of Watts, L.A., led by General Ahmed, who is fed up to the back teeth with the mistreatment of his fellow black citizens at the hands of the local mafia. His second-in-command, Koja, however, feels that Ahmed's non-violent approach is ineffective and soon sets up and takes command of the Black Gestapo. But as we all know, history repeats, and it's not long before power-mad Koja usurps the local mafia and gains control over the drugs, prostitution and numbers rackets. Will General Ahmed be able to stop Koja's fascist and corrupt mob? Well, on the last show we covered uh, Roger Moore's extracurricular James Bond career, and of course the, the other great part of um, 70s action cinema was exploitation, which um, I think we're keen to cover quite early on. The thing is, 
I've not really seen any black exploitation. I don't think. Bit of a shameful admission. Um, I've possibly seen Shaft. Yeah, I think we're in the same boat. Really, I've seen the Shaft boat. Yeah, the Shaft boat. <laughs> We've been shafted in the boat. Um, yeah, I've only seen parts of Shaft and Shaft in Africa. I've seen the remake of Shaft, which was like being shafted. How many times can I say Shaft in? You want your money back? <laughs> yes. Uh, although this Monday we will be seeing uh, Scream Blackula Scream. Oh yeah, courtesy, courtesy of, uh, of uh, cigarette, cigarette burns, burns um, in Islington uh, for our London-based listeners. Although it will probably have come and gone by the time we uh, get this edited and out on the on the net. But yeah, Scream Blackula Scream, pretty typical title of black exploitation, <laughs> just absolutely outrageous. Uh, another film the same company AIP made was Blackenstein. And I think they were going to do a third uh, classic horror monster black exploitation, the Blummy. Oh, that's definitely about uh, <laughs> a black brummy, isn't a, it? A black mummy, yes, <laughs> a black brummy. Um, but when we were going through the list of black exploitation, this this leapt out. The Black Gestapo, such an outrageous title, and so potentially tasteless as well um, that I really wanted to watch this. Um, something I've got to say straight off is. Despite that title and the trailer and the poster, it's probably not. No, it's nowhere near as tasteless as you might expect. No, yeah, I mean, fingers crossed for uh, rounding up the hunkies and gassing them in a garage, but no such luck. It was, yeah, it was actually there was a bit of a morality tale about the whole thing. Well, yeah, it goes into a bit of a, a power a fable about power corrupting people, but um, animal farm like a little bit animal farm. Well, I mean, the George Orwell one. You know, yeah, yeah, not that other one. That <laughs> I don't think we'll be covering. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, to to look at its exploitation credentials, I mean, it does certainly have a, a large amount of um, sex and violence going on. If you were paying your ticket money to watch this in 1975, you were probably getting uh, what you're expecting yeah there's plenty of boobs um, well yeah ladies are on display a great deal bums and boobs or tits and ass as they say TNA yeah. <laughs> I like B&B tush <laughs> well yeah I mean that's a point to raise I mean it's what? an exploitation B&B <laughs> yeah where are we going to be staying um, it's an exploitation movie so you're going to get a lot of this but I've, I've got to say the treatment of women in this is quite shocking yeah. Even for a film like this, I mean, most of the women in this are either hookers or flooses. Uh, the exception would be um, one of the main characters, General Ahmed's girlfriend, is uh, Marsha. Marsha, yeah, the uh, nurse, a nurse, a wonderful nurse who works at the Martin Luther King. <laughs> a wonderful nurse. A wonderful nurse who works <laughs> at the Martin Luther King uh, Hospital. But yeah, I think she's the only kind of three-dimensional character. She's probably the best actress of the um, of the actresses in it. Yeah. But yeah, the treatment of women is appalling in this. I mean, physically and mentally, and well, yeah, there's verbally. One, I mean, most of the first third of the film is is the mafia mobsters going around um, roughing people up, giving them a lot of uh, a lot of crap. But uh, their treatment of women in it, particularly, there's a there's a hooker drug addict who gets verbally assaulted, but then has her head smashed against a sort of motel. Wall, I don't know which, which was worse, the verbal or the physical assault. I mean, they, they threatened to cut her tits off, shove them up her ass, and set a bush on fire. I mean, that that's biblical. That should have been the tagline on the poster. Yeah, <laughs> <I think>. um, <laughs> yeah but I mean, that that's the level of it. I mean, that's shocking. That's really fucked up. It is. I mean, you go in kind of pleased that it isn't such a tasteless Nazi exploitation movie, as the title suggests, but it's pretty hard going, all of that kind of stuff. Although... 
it's got to be said, after setting up half an hour of all of this sort of deal with the white mobsters, when eventually the People's Army of Watts, or rather that little breakaway faction, uh, the titular <laughs> Black Gestapo, who are named, they're not Gestapo, named as that, yeah. but yeah, we'll call them for um, we'll call them that for ease. Um, mm. When they start to take their revenge again, this is really horrible. It's uh, not to spoil it, but it's very reminiscent of that scene in I Spit on Your Grave. With added toilet flush. With with with, with the uh, remainders flushed away down the toilet, yes. Brutal. Which is so bizarre because, like I say, there's so much horrible stuff in this, um, and yet the mobsters, after doing all this, are largely treated as comical figures, aren't they? The director, Lee Frost, um, the film's director, Lee Frost, actually turns up as the sort of kingpin figure, doesn't he? But he's an extremely camp yeah, he's got like a Shih Tzu and a, a toupee, and he wears silk pajamas. But again, has an enormously breasted mistress in bed who's there for. And he just—he he doesn't purposes. seem to be that involved. I mean, he's pissed off because he's not getting his money. But throwaway characters, yeah, or perturbed. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's just a little bit sort of like oh, oh, he keeps vocalizing about the Bronx, the Bronx did. Oh yes, he's got. I could have had the Bronx. I could have been a contender. Kind of yeah. yeah. But having spent so much time setting that up, the thing that the film then sort of swerves off into this um, yeah power corrupting fable. It's much more to do with uh, Koja, this power mad lieutenant who um, not <laughs> seemingly very quickly subverts this uh, peaceful defense league into something much more extreme. Like we say, it's not the Nazi exploitation film that the title suggests, although it does have a lot of what might be misguided. Um, Use of footage, oh, uh, actual footage and actual soundtrack from Nuremberg and uh, what have you. Yeah, I mean, there's two particularly memorable ones is the opening. So you've got a General Ahmed of the People's Army of Watts um, giving this sort of, you know, he's doing the old rhetoric thing and talking about how he's oppressed, the people are oppressed, they need to come out of their shells and get out there and make a change for themselves. And that's followed by there's some footage of Nazis marching to some like funky wah wah specifically uh, Hitler, yeah. Yes. But with this weird clarinet led funky jazz kind of yeah. Well, the sort of thing you'd get on a black exploitation. But and then later <laughs> on as as well, you know, you've got Koja uh rallying his troops and he leads his them into warriors. a chance his warriors, sorry. Yes. His uh his Storm Warriors, can you say that? Oh, I'm <laughs> not sure storm if you can. Storm Brothers. <laughs> and then like, he leads him into a chance of vengeance, vengeance, which is like which then, yeah, overdubbed by Z Kyle, Z yeah. Kyle. It's really misjudged, I think. Um, <laughs> it is, and yet it doesn't go further than that. I mean, no, like, no, like yeah. we said, the, your fear is, this is really going to get into territory that, you know, there's no one well, like, heard of I mean, did, did, did the black actors watch this after and did they question the whole like premise? Well, surprisingly, there's not that much documentation <laughs> on uh, the outcome of this film. It's not been covered in that much detail as like Blade Runner or something. <laughs> but no, I'm I'm sure everyone getting involved with it realised it. Yeah, we'll get paid a you know a well, few, yeah, few hundred dollars ultimately. for this or whatever it was. Um, as an exploitation film, you certainly get your money's worth. Um, the fight scenes are a little bit ropey, I think. Kind of like a sub judo throws and uh, missed punches yeah. and like uh, and punches uh. that don't connect. But then, amazingly, after that, there is a scene with a car going down an embankment, which would be sort of the sort of thing you'd see every week in the Dukes of Hazard. But does seem quite um, 
but it lasts for ages. It's an absolute corker. It's like, a, <laughs> yeah, it's have a you good... seen Hot Rod? That uh, no. Andy Samberg from Saturday Night Live. He does a, a little sort of pastiche of when characters get hit and they roll down a hill, mm. and it lasts for a good like minute and a half. You know, it keeps going, keeps going. It reminded me of that because there was like a few angles to mm. it, wasn't there? Yeah, and this is one point when the filmmaking got, got quite to the professional. End. And it got to the end and amazed that the guy was still alive inside it. Okay, I don't want any trouble. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is yeah. dialogue after that before he gets Molotov cocktailed. And then, but then, funnily enough, you, you talk about the quality of you know that sort of action sequence. There's a, They start shooting at him and all the squibs are going off after yeah. or before. So you see that ping, ping, ping. Uh, so... At that point, that's that's the end of the mobsters, really. I mm. mean, two or three of their henchmen get turned over. Um, Phil gets thrown out the window. Oh yes, that's that's <laughs> another standard action sequence, isn't it? <laughs> but after that, the whole film goes off into the power struggle, which does take on a kind of animal farm um, quality. Um, Koja sets up his training camp and makes it clear. There's a bit. It's actually quite well executed. A montage of the training. But then he makes it clear there's an officer club, an officers club where everyone's treated uh, exceptionally, and this is yeah poolside, bathing beauties, cocktails, the works. Yeah, so there's already this division within the ranks, mm-hmm. which becomes very obvious. But I think this is a great touch because it would have been so easy, given what the first half of the film is, to just make this almost like Death Wish or something, where the protagonists are pushed so far that they just go way out. I think this was a bit of a fear with it being called the Black Gestapo. It was going to be something that said or sent out a message to audiences that if you are being pushed you need to go to these kind of extreme lengths in order to get anything done. Whereas it does make it very clear that um, you know, it's a moralistic film. General Ahmed, the, the, the guy who originally sets up the, the, the People's Army of Watts, doesn't want anything to do with this and goes out of his way to stop it all. And yeah, that, that's really. the main that's the main conflict in the latter half of the film. Why well, it takes the John Matrix route, doesn't he? <laughs> yes, the end's very reminiscent. It's, it goes from Animal Farm to Commando at this point, or even the A Team, because he's setting up his little uh, shotgun kind of. Yeah, there's one man like army. Six barreled shotgun uh, homemade devices, and yeah, he, he infiltrates the camp and takes everyone on himself, doesn't he? Yeah, so. a fantastic finale. <laughs> um, so, at the end, of, what do you think of this? It's hard to say. I mean, it's, it's not what I expected. It's not what I wanted. But on the other hand, I was glad to be surprised by it. I think there's some some merits. There's some down points. Obviously, the, the misogyny stuff it, and the racist stuff. It's quite hard to handle nowadays. I think in a in a forward thinking society that we live in. Um, but you know, it's a product of its time, and yeah, it was a pleasant surprise. I thought. Are you that surprised it's dropped off the radar though? Because we've no. never even heard of this. Yeah, but do you think no. that's because of how sloppily made it is, or because I, of the subject well, matter? In some ways, because like Quentin Tarantino is a Lee Frost fan, he, he yeah. thanks him at the, in the credits, at the end of Death Proof. Yeah. So another film no one watched. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not that surprised. You know. It, it, it's low key in its um, overarching thematic provocation. Black Gestapo or Ghetto Warriors. To those who might step in our way, we declare vengeance! 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 Just 
two years after the Black Gestapo, you may well have been stuck in an endless queue to watch lightsabers and X-Wing fighters. But hey, what was that film on the next screen? The director of The Exorcist and the star of Jaws meant box office dynamite shortly. What will I this? Yes, I speak some. Wanna travel away? Yes. I can fix for you like a pitan. I want to go out of this country. Out of this country? Difficult. Very difficult. Impossible? No, it's possible. Costoso. Comprende? Cost much. Comprendo. Hitting cinemas in 1977, Sorcerer sees a disparate group of criminals and lowlives motivated by a potentially huge paycheck undertake the life-threatening task of transporting trucks loaded with nitroglycerin across the rough terrain of the Amazon in Venezuela to an oil well that needs to be plugged. Friedkin's remake of Clouseau's classic from 1953 follows a similar theme to the original, but the opening hour of Friedkin's is made up of globe-hopping exposition, introducing the viewer to the motivations of their shady and dubious characters and why they end up in their eventual situation. The latter half then proceeds like Clouseau's as her valiant vagabonds transport their potentially lethal cargo. Roy Scheider undertakes the film's central role, and he has able support from the likes of Bruno Kramer and Francesco Rabal. Will the men complete their mission with their lives intact? Will they reap financial rewards, or will they succumb to the sorcery and alchemy of an unforgiving world? Okay, well, last time we covered the ninth configuration that was writer Peter Blatty's follow-up to The Exorcist, so in the interests of fairness, this is uh, William Friedkin, who was the box office dynamite at this point, wasn't he? Yeah, French uh, Connection, French Exorcist. French Connection, Exorcist, uh, and he had cruising yet to come. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Little did he realise. Um... So yeah, this is a movie I've only seen recently because it is quite difficult to get hold of. It seems to have um, been wiped out of cinematic memory, although it was a very expensive movie to make. But as we said in the introduction, it came out opposite Star Wars and we can't entirely blame Star Wars for its um, lack of success, but it's it's very obscure now. There was some part of its uh, lack of success was due to the fact that in the opening part of the film there's a lot of subtitles and people would walk out and then so later on um, is it Warner Brothers or Universal um, they actually put a disclaimer on the movie posters saying there are subtitles for the first half hour but this is an integral part of the film <laughs> I this was heard, in America I hadn't heard that what I'd heard though was because it was um, the director of The Exorcist they'd probably push that the fact that the title Sorcerer probably probably thought oh right okay it's going to be and some of the newspaper ads went this is not a supernatural movie <laughs> I can you imagine that for like Gilliam's Brazil yes. <laughs> this is not about a country in South America this is America. not about the nut, where the nuts come from <laughs> um, but yeah um, a film I knew not really by reputation but because as a teenager I was a massive fan of um, Tangerine Dream German electronics group and I own, I own the soundtrack and listening to that for many years uh it was very. It's a very evocative soundtrack. It was, um, oh, and there, there's a few notes from Freakin on the back sleeve of that. So, what? Some twenty years later, I finally get to see the movie. Um, was it quite what you were expecting? Well, to be honest, I only saw it for the first time uh, a couple of months ago, and I watched it straight after watching uh, The Wages of Fear, and um, I was blown away by this. I really loved it, and to rewatch it again recently for this podcast. I, I liked it even more the second time. Um, you weren't put off by the subtitles and the lack of supernatural <laughs> elements? No, no, no. Um, I don't really want to just talk about The Wages of Fear because I think it, 
I'd rather just discuss this in its own right because obviously okay. that's what we're aiming for. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen that, but I remember it being a really good movie. Yeah, um, but this is just brilliant. It's taut, it's tense, uh, pyrotechnics galore. There's mystery with the characters. Uh, it's just got a lot of stuff that uh, sort of it's it's a bit like we were talking about North Sea Hijack last last time. It's an action movie that doesn't have oodles of action you know it's not like a, an 80s action movie it's it still has enough of that uh yeah i'd love it if the expendables had had this plot <laughs> <laughs> well you say it's taught but i mean something we mentioned in the introduction was it spends a long time with this um setting up the characters in the introduction which uh, you said first time you watched it you felt went on for about an hour and you're surprised that it only lasts half an hour actually um i didn't mean I didn't mean that in a, a bad way at all. I mean, I like that. I like the fact it does that. Oh, I, I'm going to have to refer back to the Wages of Fear again now because you, there's a mystery about those uh, characters in the Wages of Fear that I didn't. You only relate to them in a small period of time. Yeah. Cause whereas this has got a lot of backstory. Because, like I say, it's been a long time since I've seen Wages of Fear, but remember, it just starts in. Yeah, it's in the little town, yeah, isn't it? So these people are just convicts and that's sort of all that there it's alluded to yeah. isn't it yeah, yeah. they're, they're desperados wrong side of the law yeah whereas here um we're I'll probably get this wrong now where are we hopping from paris israel uh, uh new jersey yeah. and vera cruz which yeah. i think is mexico yeah and this is half an hour building up um giving us some background te detail on all these characters and how they end up uh, on the run Whereas, you know, I was, certainly first time I watched this, which was about four months ago, I was desperate for it to get going. And, you know, I wanted to see all these fantastic shots in the jungle. I wanted nitroglycerin. Yeah, you wanted the iconic uh, bridge scenes. Yeah, I was like, oh man, where's this going? <laughs> well, not to get too much onto the technical side of it, but yeah, William Friedkin at this point was at, his, at, at the height of his success after Exorcist and French Connection. There is a feeling with this, for me of a director who's got that reputation and is going to milk it do you think it really needed half an hour to set up all these characters yeah okay that's <laughs> <laughs> I do I think I mean like I said it's so hard not to refer back to the wages of fear but I think it's integral to the overall plot because because the characters are so morally questionable you know you've seen what they're capable of yeah, in their past you've seen them all being in, well I think the least of them is a massive embezzler, isn't he? Which yeah. probably nowadays is probably worse for us than. Uh, but he's willing to just like leave his wife in the yeah. shit and escape. Um, so you know, they're, they're not nice people, and I think it's important that you have. And to be honest, I love like Freakin's flair for, um, you know, the the scenes that uh, are included in this exposition. It was a great. Um, heist robbery in New Jersey and mm -hmm. a massive car crash you know it's it's not pyrotechnics but it's really in your face there's a mobbing and bombs in Israel and yeah. you know the sort of documentary style filmmaker comes out of that you know you're really in the thick of it and there's all the mystery there because it's all mystery the exposition it's you don't know where it's going yeah. to because well, I was very confused what these things have to do with each other yeah, yeah. and then when it all comes to together it, you know an, an hour later I mean well 35 minutes later it's like ah but I, I was re I felt that was a really re rewarding experience mm -hmm. you know and yeah I suppose you could say to some degree 
it's him saying, look, I'm capable of doing this, you know, I can film here and there. But I think originally it was going to be in flashbacks, all those expositions were going to be used as flashback sequences. That would be a more normal way normal, of integrating yeah. them, so you could get on with things. And But I like the fact that he's done it this way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's nice to have a troublemaker every so often. <laughs> but yeah, once we actually get to the jungle, I mean, this is the, the crux of the movie, um, something that's notable about that is this probably came out between, well, probably, it definitely came out between uh, <laughs> Herzog's two big, um, Werner Herzog's mm. two big jungle based <laughs> movies, uh, El Gear, Agir, Wrath of God, and uh, Fitzcarraldo. Yeah. You've probably done a bit more research on this than me, but um, I mean, those those two films I know had a hell of a shooting schedule, uh, not just because of the jungle, but because of Klaus Kinski. Did this have the same kind of. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, it's famously had a budget that spiraled out of control, to use the cliche. It was yeah, it was twelve million originally. It escalated to twenty-two million. The biggest problems were like uh, road bridge scene where the vehicles transporting the nitroglycerin yeah. had to cross yeah. these uh, t- raging torrented rivers. Torrented is that torrented? Right? Torrents, I don't think so. Raging torrents of rivers, and they built one at the cost of two million, I think, and then the river dried up. So they had to move to another country and do it again. And again, the river dried up. And then they had locals who were really worried that they were causing this river drying right. up. So they it were does like, have supernatural elements. Yes, yeah, it does. It, the real side of it has supernatural elements. So, yeah, I mean, he was just... It was spiralling out of control. You know, it's like you say, it's a good comparison. It's like Fitzcarraldo, you know. This is kind of like Friedkin's Fitzcarraldo because he's, he's going up a mountain, he's trying to drag this film yeah. up a mountain and down the other side and I think he does it admirably you know I mean he's on record as saying it's his favourite film that really? he made yeah I didn't know that it's the closest one to what he uh, wanted to recreate okay. you know the, the actual outcome no, because um, you mentioned North Sea Hijack which we said was an action film with little action the rope bridge sequences in this probably are the standout action sequences there's very little other than that the jungle sequences don't really have that much going on I didn't think no, I especially. Suppose. I mean, this is this is just my prejudice. The scene once they actually get to set off in the in the two there's two trucks with the nitroglycerin in. Once they set off, there's a kind of little montage with the tantrum dream music, but no other background sound, and they're all very close to the edges of cliffs with the crumbling rocks and things. I just thought that looked really slapdash. Oh, it just seemed like yeah, yeah. It seemed like someone who's begrudgingly sticking a bit of action in there, but not really bothering to put any suspense in it. It was more like. Yeah, it's it's a bit perilous this bit. Oh, I, I think quite the opposite. I think it really worked for me because you know they've got to do a two hundred mile journey, and he he's obviously had these two set pieces in mind: the rope bridge and the removal of, of the, the fallen truck. tree. Yeah. Um, it's a very big tree. Though, it's huge. It's, yeah, yes, I mean it's a yeah. good old Amazonian yeah. uh, trunk, isn't it? Yeah. So I think those sequences after they've set off and they're, they're just going going along as it were and there's there's a little scene that mirrors the wages of fear where they're going over the, the logs mm. of a makeshift, it's not a bridge is it, it's a, there's been a landslide or something yeah. and they've recreated the road with some logs, that was a little... Because yeah, basically they have the choice of going very fast to stop the glycerin from shaking around yeah. or going very slowly with like because yeah, one of them had already gone across and they'd mm-hmm. left a message saying good yeah. luck good luck Serrano I think the message was but yeah I know I like those I mean I could just listen listen to the soundtrack by itself so to have those moments where you can have extended portions of the music is, is good for me also wanted to mention the um, 
the montage of the, them building the trucks. Oh yeah, it's I a really little eighteen, that. isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's great. <laughs> Which is where, sorry, we didn't mention this. This is where the title of the film comes from. One of the trucks is called Sorcerer, Sorcerer. although it's not really very in your face. You have to probably be uh, paying attention. Mm. Yeah, because it's it faded, yeah, pa- faded paint on one of the doors of the vehicles, which is the really cool looking vehicle that has like uh, a grill which looks like teeth. It reminds yeah. me of this old sort of eighties cartoon called Jason the Wheeled Warriors, where they had these like biomorphic mechanical vehicles that were sort of. Okay, we'll have, to not co- we'll have to not cover that on our future. <laughs> I was thinking more of Duel than Spielberg. Something we've not discussed is the cast, because they're international as well. And as we said in the introduction, the star of Jaws. I mean, Roy Scheider was never a huge draw. I mean, he's, he's probably one of my favourite actors, though, I think. From this period? Yeah. yeah. Um, Jaws, and there's a movie he did later, All That Jazz, which is kind of a Bob, Bob Fosse thing, which... Mm. Um, a bit tangential but all the fuss about Black Swan recently I've gone back to all that jazz and thought this is the film I'd rather watch oh, okay. about a choreographer a, that world of dance that gone out of control but yeah I mean to give a bit of background on this Scheider wasn't his first choice uh, Friedkin's first choice he wanted he, he, he was like second or third banana well there's again um, the little bit of research I've done on this some people claim Scheider was the only choice and it was maybe something the studios um, had insisted on Definitely, though, I've read that McQueen, Steve McQueen, was um, was asked to do it, but was had troubles with going to the jungle for that length of time because of Ali McGraw. Because of Ali McGraw, who he wanted on board as a producer, possibly. And yeah, <laughs> um, can you imagine this with Steve McQueen? We should probably do a special on films that should have had Steve McQueen in. Because <laughs> Close Encounters was going to be Steve McQueen originally, but he said he couldn't cry on camera. He <laughs> was in demand. Um, <laughs> I can't imagine it with him because I only know it as Roy Scheider. I think yeah. it's very hard to, but also I only know to transpose someone yeah. like McQueen but into that kind of role. I, I know what you mean because I suppose again with Close Encounters, you're so used to how Dreyfus plays him in that. Richard Dreyfus is this much more unassuming everyman that to have iconic Steve McQueen wouldn't really have worked. Or no. I can't imagine how it would have. And in this, Roy Scheider is again is a bit of an everyman. I don't think he brings that baggage of the Great Escape and. Uh, I think what a magnificent seven. Yeah, you know, or um, what's the one with the uh, the chess game? Oh, sexy Thomas, chess game. Thomas Crown. Thomas Crown affair. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean sexy chess game. <laughs> <laughs> if there's such a thing, <laughs> but the rest of the cast, you know, they're all apparently all of the apart from Amidou who played the Agudu, <laughs> who played the Palestinian terrorists that were introduced to at the beginning in Israel. Um, he was the first choice of Freak and everyone else uh, because McQueen backed out so they had Marcello Mastriano Mastriano yeah I can imagine him <laughs> he said nah if McQueen's not doing it I'm not playing second fiddle to uh, <laughs> Brody <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I like them all they um, Francisco Rabal particularly is the the mysterious hitman who yeah he's got a touch of the Lee Van Cleef to him hasn't he? but he's he, pencil, pencil the way he there. visibly ages through the yeah. journey is very impressive you know the fear he starts to show and yeah. I, he, he I don't want to spoil anything but the final scenes with him in are I think fantastic mm, they're great yeah, yeah. there's actually they reminded me a bit um, towards the end um, where um, Scheider and Rabal Shadow's having a lot of sort of dream sequences. Yeah, that he's, reminded he's me of the ninth configuration a little All bit. All right, it reminded me more of the end of uh, Fistful of um, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly a oh, little bit. Just yeah, imagine people really at the end of their rope and not <laughs> <and they're laughs> getting through. This. 
but yeah, I suppose it does lend something that I'm personally not that familiar with the rest of the cast, so it does add something to it that um, it doesn't feel like a processed Hollywood movie, even though the budget makes it clear that, <laughs> well, it wasn't processed, but it certainly had a lot more money behind it than um, the Black Gestapo. Poor Lee Frost. Can you imagine Lee Frost doing Sorcerer? <laughs> with a clarinet soundtrack. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> There'd probably be more tits than ass. <laughs> but yeah, oh, and just another quick one, um, another character who crops up, blinking you miss him, Joe Spinell. Lovely Joe Spinell. Is this it <laughs> we should get into sp- podcasting we've already Yeah, like, we should get him to sponsor the podcast for us, maybe. Uh, Joe Spinell. <laughs> Only if it wears Lycra like in Star Crash. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, those four main characters, we've touched on this, but the fact that they'll have such unpleasant backgrounds do you find it easy to relate to them or care whether they live or die because this is the whole idea is they're constantly in right on the brink of exploding well there is for me anyway and i think this might have been to some degree freaking's aim there's a there's an air of redemption about it but it's kind of greedy redemption you know obviously they want the money they want to get away but they're going through hell to get it you know they're, they're risking their lives and everything to uh to get it I kind of felt for them in that kind of in a in a, on a very human level, sort of. I don't want to just see people die, um, especially blown to smithereens. Yeah, it is kind of hard to relate to them. I think on a you know like most Hollywood films, you you've got your very obvious um, heart heartstring pullers or right, you yeah. know. So there's a redemptive quality to them. Yeah, the, I think, and I think that's what's ultimately though. Freaking is obviously doing that. You reap what you sow. Right. You know that the whole sorcerer fate kind of thing. It, you know, sor- it, the again, sorcerer is the wizard of fate. Is the well, that's what Freakin's on record as saying. The mm. film. That's why it's called Sorcerer. And he thinks that's a relevant title. Is it is about fate. There's no. Th- we wh- we don't know when he actually yeah. said this, though, do we? <laughs> no, <someone laughs> was this about just five years after the film came out. Yeah, possibly when he's had enough time to uh, think about it. <laughs> the thing I felt it was. Um, okay, based on a very famous French movie. It had an air of existentialism to it. The idea of these characters kind of defining themselves by doing these, uh, by carrying out these life and death actions. People doing something, risking their lives, but that's kind of, it's important that they do that rather than just hang around having a normal kind of an existence. Yeah, I mean, that's the that, that's the redemptive quality for mm. me. It's more that it's, <coughs> it's a world where you have to suffer for the things you've done wrong, I think. Yeah. Um, or nature will nature will bite you in the ass kind of thing right um yeah because i hadn't thought of that but this is this is it like i say the first time i watched it i really didn't like this but i'll admit i watched it at christmas and i think i was on a bit of a movie uh not movie rush or movie drag at the time (laughs) i've probably been watching movies uh non-stop for a couple of days so the fact that it disappointed me that it was taking so long to get going i think i did um i had to watch it in two sittings this time round, this is only about three months ago watching it now, um, I enjoyed it a lot more, probably because it was the first film I've watched in a few days. But what surprised me was I couldn't remember anything about the first screening of it, other than how long it took to set up, and yeah, the bit with the tree trunk, and the very last scene. But um, yeah, I can imagine it being something I'd watch again, certainly. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping to, uh, watch hoping it to hear every some day. News. No, to hear <laughs> yes. some news about like a possible Blu-ray or a special edition release, you know. Which is amazing because um, where is this releases. film? Why isn't it out? Because we there's a region one. There's a region one there? of it, but you'd have thought that it's unless strange. The, unless there's any copyright issues with music or something, I'm not sure. I wouldn't have thought so because most of freaking stuff now is 
been released, hasn't it? Um, well, let me ask you a really stupid question. Where would you rate this next to Exorcist, French Connection and Cruising? Putting my neck on the line here. Yeah. I think it's the best thing he's done. Yeah, by yeah. some margin? or By some margin. Right. Mm, I'm going to go with like Freakin's own uh, opinion of it. I think it's definitely the best thing he's done. You know, there, uh, there's one place down here that might be kind of nice for a guy in your situation. You ever think of going to Managua? Managua? Shit, there's no way I can go to Managua. Too bad, it's a nice place. No. Managua's no good for me. From one troublemaking director with his own unique vision to another, albeit one keeping a tighter eye on the budget. But your girlfriend doesn't do this for you? Nah, nor me mum neither. Well, I remind you of your mother, do I? No, not exactly. It's just that you're so considerate. There. Thank you. Oh, I haven't finished it. Very loosely based on Bram Stoker's novel of the same name, Ken Russell's 1988 film makes use of the legend of the Lambton Worm. Peter Capaldi is Angus, an archaeology student who discovers an, an unusual skull on the site where a convent once stood. This is now a B&B run by two sisters, Eve and Mary, whose parents mysteriously disappeared the year before near Temple House. Angus unearths the legend of the Dampton Worm, an ancient dragon or snake-like beast slain in Stonerich Cavern by John Dampton, whose descendant, Lord James Dampton, played by Hugh Grant, is a friend of and maybe suitor to Eve. Meanwhile, the conspicuously frisky lady Sylvia Marsh of nearby Temple House displays a number of unusual characteristics, and when a pocket watch belonging to Eve and Mary's father is discovered in Stonerich Cavern, James and Angus believe there could be some link between the legend and Lady Sylvia. So, this came out in 1988, so around the same time as Hellraiser, which was the, the Great White Hope of British horror, I remember. Uh, Red Hope <laughs> came out about the same time, but very different films. Because um, Hellraiser, I mean, I, I've not watched that for a while. And I watched this, it very recently. Yeah, yeah is that, does it still hold up? Because I remember thinking it was quite. I remember really enjoying it. Yeah, it's it's brilliant. It, um, the talk when it came out amongst horror fans was it was something that understood the rules of horror and was subverting them and was doing something very different with them. And this, this is Ken Russell. He's a joker. Isn't he? He's a bit of a jester. <laughs> well, I think he's he's poking fun at all sorts of people on this. I think society, uh, filmmakers, um, horror films. I think he's just having a good old laugh. Well, that's it because, uh, well, his reputation um, precedes well, him. Precedes him, and will live long after him. <laughs> uh, we hope he won't be gone for a while yet. You and I have both watched The Devils fairly recently, and mm. it's it's a brilliant film. Yeah, that's really, really something genuinely special. Genuinely great filmmaking. After that, there were films like Tommy um, and Listomania. And I know, I know you've not seen Listomania yet. But, not yet. Um, no. They're both yeah outrageous films, but there's a sense that he does have some serious point he wants to make. This seems to be like the first film which is ties in with how people generally view Ken Russell these days, which is this sort of sex-obsessed... Yeah, Joker, as you say. Um, he's almost like a Kenny Everett figure <laughs> or something doing this incredibly over the top film this uh, there are a couple of scenes in this which suggest he's still got his hang-ups on the catholic church but this is mostly just a really bawdy sex horror film possibly even a horror spoof i'd go with spoof mm. yeah i think so because well it's certainly got its tongue in its cheek well yeah and amongst <laughs> other places <laughs> probably other places, yeah. <laughs> um it's hilarious i mean from the outset it, 
I think when I was watching it, I was thinking, this is so BBC. There's something so BBC about it. There is. It looks very cheap. Given he has gone from doing these huge budget films like Tommy, Listomania, I did read recently, um, in Michael Palin's Monty Python Diaries, I think he becomes one of the directors at Shepperton or Borehamwood, and um, their first order of business is that Listomania has been such a massive flop that they desperately need to have Superman or something filmed there. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Um, yeah, the the thing this reminded me of, you say BBC, it does seem very much like the sort of dramas the BBC did in the late 90s. And the main thing is that it has this very cheap synthesizer soundtrack. I don't want to talk about the technical aspects of it too early on, but that does set the tone for it. Yeah, but I really love that. You like the soundtrack? I, I, since I'm just mad. For, I'm a gog for synths. <laughs> I, I really love synths. And it had that brilliant chiming sound that you only hear... It's an orchestral from, stab, isn't it? Yeah. Which, in the title sequence, even as the credits are coming up, when it gets to Ken Russell's name, that it kicks in <laughs> as if we should be fearing Ken Russell beyond anything else in the film. And it, I, I noticed it as well because um, it also k- kicked in when uh, the cinematographer came up, Dick Bush, who was the what a great name! Yeah, I love that name. Who was the cinematographer on Sorcerer? Yes, for half the film until he had a fallout with. Uh, freak and walked mm-hmm. off, but that's bad. And he knew great things were ahead of him. Who, Dick Bush? <laughs> what, the Bush, <laughs> the Bushmeister, <laughs> the Bushatala. Um, this pretty much starts off with Peter Capaldi, who's now famous for other other kinds of roles. I Malcolm Tucker. I mean, Malcolm, Malcolm Tucker. Malcolm Tucker. Yes, yeah, <laughs> famous from the thick of it. Um, discovering this huge skull, but. The, person, the actor I want to talk about is Sammy Davis. Did you come across her before? No, I hadn't. I mean, no, I no. hadn't. <laughs> she has an amazing accent and isn't... It's is pure Postman the... Pat. It's, it's all like, <laughs> hello, Pat. How's it going, Pat? We've got to make the tea for the guests. <laughs> it's so... Oh. Um, although, no, she did seem, Sammy Davis did seem to crop up in a few slightly off-kilter British films at the time, black comedies, uh, horror films, that kind of thing, which is amazing because she's not a good actress unless, and uh, I guess I, unless she's doing it on purpose, although I could well believe Ken Russell hired her deliberately to have this kind of, to convey that kind of air in it. Because it's such an over-the-top subject matter, and Amanda Donahoe will we'll get onto her soon, soon enough. Hope. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, oh, Sammy, I couldn't take her seriously. Yeah, I couldn't. She's a very naive little elf <laughs> with peroxide blonde. Well, it's not peroxide blonde. I think she's naturally no, she's blonde. Naturally blonde. Um, but yeah, her dialogue. You say postman Pat. I, you know, the air of those Alan Bennettish kind oh, of heartbeats. Um, heartbeats. Yeah, it's, 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 it's gormless. It's absolutely gormless. Yeah, and incredible exposition in the opening scene. I said, what, you found there, Mr. Archaeologist? <laughs> I, don't think, I can't remember it now, but she, she, Capaldi says something about her parents. He said, since they died in that terrible accident. <laughs> Sammy Davis um, and her sister, Catherine Oxenberg, who's somewhat better in the acting department, but let's not get too carried away. I think we should just get on to Amanda um, Donahoe, because it's about her. <laughs> She's, um, well, no, she is the... I, I wouldn't be surprised if the film wasn't entirely built around her. I mean, I've no proof to back this up, but Oliver, Oliver Reed, obviously, um, a big Ken Russell collaborator from his earlier films. Amanda Donahoe, I think, broke through appearing in um, Castaway with Oliver Reed for Nick Rogue. I could well imagine Ken Russell watching that and thinking, I want to do a film with her. <laughs> yeah. Um, She'll do anything. Well, yes. Um, and she does in this, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. I mean, uh, the thing She's, I really liked about it was um, before watching this, 
I, I was just reading up about Larry the White Worm and I came to the IMDB and uh, yeah in, in her bio on IMDB it says she's a devout feminist and socialist her reputation rests on this kind of role where yeah a lot of nudity and she's not yeah she's not shy about um, parading about in all kinds of uh, luckily for us luckily for us <laughs> um, but I was thinking is her career based on that or is it just this film looms so large possibly I mean outside of this I mean there's Castaway obviously and I mean the other stuff she did um, I know she's in an episode of Frasier really? recently oh. <laughs> amazingly recently she's been in Emmerdale Farm it's sort of well Emmerdale as it's now known it's sort of very quaint British soap opera but I think she's a femme fatale in that although some 20 years later she is incredible in this her performance is so confident and overboard and yeah she's constantly parading around <laughs> in uh, outrageous costumes yeah I mean just her, her opening um scene for her she's wearing all white with like a tricorn yes <laughs> she looked like, something... like a highwayman highway yeah, woman yeah <laughs> I thought she was like from a Peter Greenaway film or yeah something. definitely yeah while she's um, attending to <laughs> the guy who played the rancor keeper in Return of the Jedi Paul Brook who, Paul uh, Brook yeah. if, you, if you're not quite familiar with it he's the guy with the lazy eye who's in yeah. all of these kind of I think he's, is, he, is he in Wilt or uh, Port of Porterhouse Blues he's in one of those possibly. adaptations he, which is the thing the notable thing about him not to detract from his acting skills but everyone knows him for the lazy eye which mm. is what makes him really stand out but he he's very good at playing those kind of roles as a, quite a middle management kind of someone who's uh, not a jobs worth but you know just be, just above jobs worth yeah he's a jobs worth who doesn't really have much of a job but yeah um, Amanda Donahue's amazing costumes in this um, and where to begin? <laughs> well, probably her capture of a, a Boy Scout, a, 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 a mouth organ playing Boy Scout, Kevin, <laughs> called Kevin, <laughs> who doesn't like all that head banging music. No, I don't like all that head banging music. <laughs> but yeah, if you have happy memories of watching this as a teenage boy, um, <laughs> this is probably the scene you're going to remember, which is a Boy Scout. Being rescued from a, a rain-soaked hitchhiking session by Amanda Donahoe, who takes him back to her um, mansion and uh, scrubs him down with a loafer while she's wearing what rubber stockings or something. No, she's not wearing. She's just she's wearing got, like an eighty-style swimsuit, but it's in it's leather. Not a swimsuit, it's, it's, but no. She's got these leather kind of high-heeled waders on. Oh yeah, no, she does because I remember. Look, uh, it's all coming back to you now. You remember looking at that? <laughs> I thought, yes. oh, it's like Superman Two. Like, uh, um, what's her name in Superman Two? Oh yeah, uh, Ursa. Or yeah, and then, well, yeah, she's uh, just the yeah. core of the movie, and obviously the, the movie. <laughs> the gist of the film is like it's uh, there's a, she's a vampire. She's basically a vampire. A yes, which I must say, um, when I first saw the video cover of this, I must have been about nine or ten years old and I saw it in the local video shop and I can't find that VHS cover anymore even on the internet mm. which was just a picture it's when she first transforms in the house she's gone to steal the uh, worm skull oh is this when she, she spits, spits on, venom the on the crucifix yeah. and that was the front cover right. and these, 
she's got these amazing they're the best vampire fangs I've ever seen in any film high praise indeed yeah they are superb they're so curved and ca- they're like saber two tiger teeth aren't they mm. I think they're brilliant I, I think it's a really good prop and probably the best of one of the best effects of the entire film yeah I mean it's a basic effect you can tell from the yeah. people she's at where how it was done but that leads on to a really good scene in it because um the venom on the crucifix. Um, later, one of the girls comes back. Catherine Oxenberg touches this venom-soaked crucifix and has this bizarre vision, which the other film Ken Russell's famous for is uh, Altered States, which mm. was um, much loved by herbally uh, herbally infused people <laughs> for its many hallucinogenic scenes. Uh, I really like the hallucinations in this. I've, I, I started off saying this didn't have any artistic pretensions, but I think they look great. Yeah, um, there are two or three kind of yeah visions or dream sequences that look to have been the, done on high contrast video. Or yeah, something. definitely. Yeah, they've got that MTV look about them. Yeah, um, I mean, even with the video the effects, you can tell how they zoomed in and merged them. The rest yeah. of it's done on film, cinematic, but this looks like they've put in again. This is this was something Channel Four used to do a lot on arts programs in the eighties, but that look of messing around with video to try and get something um, interesting going on. But they're really raucous, aren't they? The visions, not not like, because Hugh Grant The content of them or the look of yeah, them? Yeah, the, the look and the content. Yeah, because that early one with the crucifix, again, sort of harks back to the devils. You've got white-clad nuns being raped by uh, Roman Romans, guards yeah. and Amanda Donahoe, again, not, not being too shy about her performance there. No, no. But yeah, I just thought it was like some insane Duran Duran video from, you know, like Wild oh, Boys. It's a lot better than that. It nods its head toward being a, pr- a horror film at various points. There are a few gore effects. Um, did they work for you? I'm trying to think Well, of the that. notable ones would be the white worm itself, which crops up early as a hallucination, but then is, I don't think this is spoiling too much, makes it physically manifests at the, uh, at the end of business, yeah. <laughs> at the close of business. Well, it looks quite functional, doesn't it? It's kind of a... I, mean, I thought that was a little bit ropey, but... I don't it did the trick. Though. The fangs did it for me too. Yeah, that was that. That was definitely my. Uh... How about um, how about without spoiling what actually happens? But one of the characters, <laughs> we won't reveal which, is killed by being um, impaled on a sundial. <laughs> so that I did like so that. So that this character's eye is uh, left hanging off. <laughs> I thought that was particularly funny. <laughs> Touches like that I really like in it. It's like I say this this was. This is such an unusual film. Um, I remember when it was first on Channel 4 some time ago, someone very enthusiastic, a friend of mine very enthusiastically said, this is what Hammer film should have gone into. (laughs) (laughs) Really? (laughs) This is the nearest thing to a modern Hammer film. And I think, much as I love Hammer films, they took themselves rather more seriously than this. This was pretty much an excuse to get some um, amazing Amanda Donahue action. And... um, and also, I mean, the other great vision in it uh, is Hugh Grant's Dreams Air Hostess <laughs> Dream, which I did notice when we were looking around for trailers and things for this. That stands in isolation on YouTube. Someone's posted it up in its entirety on its own, so it's probably got very it special fantastic. memories. It's like well, a Robert Palmer video. Um, it's better than a Robert Palmer video. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I keep trying to link to bands of the 80s. Oh, goodness me. It's I mean, great. If you're not familiar with this, it's... it's um, <laughs> it's Hugh Grant. We've not really talked much about Hugh Grant, given this would be one of his very early appearances. But he's pretty much nailed his his entire career here, hasn't he? He's playing a sort yeah. of got the same haircut. He's just playing a the fop. fop. Yeah. yeah. But I found him like he didn't jar on me at all. No, he, he was quite affable he as works, a character. He works in the context. Strangely of the enough, film. he 
he sort of gets to grips with the whole uh, the whole supernatural side of it way before anyone else does. He buys into it, but I think the idea he's almost he's not really from another world, but he's from another age, isn't he? I mm. think he's much more um, he's much more on the ball. Which is, yes, he's the one positing theories about the pocket watch being found in worm excrement. But anyway, back to the air hostess scene, which uh, is probably the most celebrated scene in it. But yeah, the film just stops dead for probably the best part of five minutes, I should think. Well, we have. It reminded me a little bit of those sequences in Twin Peaks where Agent Cooper would have a dream that was going to reveal some clue about whatever David Lynch decided it was going to be about that week. Um, this doesn't really bother doing that, does it? It looks like it is, but it's just an excuse to have um, Amanda Donahoe and Catherine Oxenberg uh, cat wrestling. Yeah, I mean, it's, is it's cat wrestling a term, or have I just made that up? No, cat yeah, fighting. Why, why can't cats wrestle? Sure, they can. <laughs> yeah. I don't see why not. Uh, Katsuma, I'd like to see more of that. <laughs> um, it doesn't add anything to the plot, but that's what makes it great, I think, as well. You know, <laughs> yeah. the fact that Ken Russell saw fits it. I can, I can just imagine. It. We'll bloody well keep that in. <laughs> yeah, he's probably got access to a, a private jet for the day. But it's great, though. I mean, it really is like a, it's well choreographed. It, shot brilliant it's humorous it's it is humorous because yeah it's the wrestling but the way it keeps cutting to Hugh Grant strapped into a chair waving uh, a red felt tip around as if it's a phallus <laughs> and we'll then cut back this kind of goes back to the black Gestapo the editor will then it'll cut back to these two girls engaging in an even more elaborate piece of wrestling <laughs> usually with their legs rather than scissor fists. sisters um, almost at one point <laughs> yes I like the way you mentioned the sort of you know the uh pen metaphor like, for the phallus how throughout the film there are these uh, metaphors for the white snake you know yeah. right at the beginning you've got the hose throughout it yeah the, building uh, up to a not so obvious one there's a hoover at one point there's a tube of a white a white tube of yes. a like a it's like one of those gets tangled because yeah. it is lovely that the, <laughs> it's built around something like uh, yeah a burnt down abbey uh, a convent on the site of this uh, Snake God, and now it's a bed and breakfast. I think yeah. that, that in itself sums the film up. <laughs> I've got to get back to make the guests their tea. <laughs> Did you end feeling um, satisfied? I was a little let down by the ending. But, but do you think the ending was that important, given it had already delivered what it was setting out to do? I don't think the ending was important, but y you always want you want things to be wrapped up to some degree in films, mm. and uh, Russell injects a little bit of ambiguity. Well, which I felt was it felt like a sort of kind of a Hollywood cop out in a way yeah I mean we won't reveal what the actual ending is but it's one you've seen many sort of times before especially in horror films where yeah, things are meant to have been resolved but um, yeah that's the only thing that lets it down I think mm. yeah I'd agree I think other, other than that it's a brilliant uh, brilliant yeah yeah cool. I think I don't think that's too uh, give out the superlatives yeah <laughs> Look, you go along, Mary. One of us should be home getting the visitors' teas ready. You know how they go on if it's not on the table waiting. You sure you'll be all right? Oh, stop your mothering. Right then, if I don't go, I suppose I'll never hear the last of it. So that's the end of our second show. Hope you enjoyed it. If you're going to stick around with us, it'll be great if, to get some feedback from you. Midnightvideo at hotmail.co.uk for any emails. And midnightvideo on Twitter. I'm on Twitter at the furious t-h-e-p-h-u-r-i-o-u-s and i've got a blog which is christkid you're a weirdo or one word dot com 
and yeah it'd be great to hear from you until next time good night John Dumpton went up fishing once out fishing in the weir he caught a fish upon his hook he thought look mighty queer now what the kind of fish it was John Dumpton couldn't tell but he didn't like the look of it so he threw it down a well <laughs>